So, um, so guys, thank you so much for taking some time to answer some questions that were raised by our group here. Um, we've got a lot of great questions, so I really appreciate that. Um, we're going to start off with uh, something that I think is really a, a good place to start. And I think, Daryl, this might be a good one for you to start, and then, and then feel, please feel free to, to tag on, too. But uh, this first question is, how do I differentiate between the evil ideology of CRT and genuine, horrible, racist things our culture has engaged in? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the irony of critical race theory is that it tries to use the past as a weapon. So that's the first thing you need to understand. <clears throat> the past is the past. I don't mean to sound simplistic, but that's what CRT does. CRT resurrects and re-prosecutes the past as if it were a present-day reality. That's the thing you have to understand about critical race theory. The things of the past, Jim Crow, redlining, slavery, peonage, <clears throat> all that stuff is documented objectively as being part of America's history. But it's history. Now, there's also a history in America that critical race theory does not acknowledge. Part of that history has to do, and, and, and understand what I'm about to say. Critical race theory as an ideology is biased in two ways. It's biased in favor of black people and it's biased against white people. So understand what I'm about to say against that reality. There's a history in America also that involves the way black people treated black people. Now, critical race theory is holistically, in its totality, an ideology that pits black people against, more accurately, non-black people. But in critical race theory, if you're not black, you're white. You can be Asian ethnically. You can be Hispanic ethnically. You could be Middle Eastern ethnically. It doesn't matter in critical race theory. If you're not black, you're white. So though I understand the question, <clears throat> the, question is really, th the question really represents the trap that CRT presents. But CRT wants to get you emotionally caught up in a uh, regretful reality, which is uh, certain subjective events that they'll raise from, uh, as it relates to America's past. They'll try to get you emotionally caught up in that. When the reality is, as Christians, this is a product of the depravity of the human heart. This is exactly what Phil was talking about earlier. Critical race theory doesn't see it as a sin issue. He sees it as a social issue. You see. So, but that's what critical race theory does. It tries to get you caught up into the social dynamic of historical events that are in history that are unchangeable, but that they try to resurrect and re-prosecute today as if those are present-day realities. So to say all that, there's really no fixed answer to that question. I would continue to say that the question is a is a is evidence of how trick 
uh, uh, what trickery is, as Phil said, what trickery critical race theory is. Um, there's nothing that that person can do about the past. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that this entire, all of creation is subject to corruption. It's been that way since the fall of even Adam in the garden. It's been that way. It's going to be that way until Christ returns to make all things new. But again, with all due respect to the questioner, I think the question represents the, how successful critical race theory has been. And, and, and those who, 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 uh, who support it and, and promote it, how successful critical race theory has been and critical race theorists have been in resurrecting and re-prosecuting the past so as to, to uh, uh, convince us to, at worst, feel guilty about what happened and then, at best, think that there's something we can do about that when there's nothing you can do about that. I have nothing to add to that. I find myself wishing I had my Hammond organ <laughs> sound effect, you know? I'll just say amen. I will say amen to that. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, the next thing I thought would be kind of interesting is is terms. You know, there, it's really important, I think, that we that we define the terms so that we're talking about the same thing. This one question really talks about a term that I hear a lot is intersectionality. What does it mean? But maybe we could also take that as a launching point really just to kind of discuss the importance of understanding that we're talking about a common, a common language that we can really kind of level set on. So first, let's define intersectionality. And then secondly, how important is it to really define the term so we're talking about the same thing? And either one of you guys can jump on that. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, you know not to promote the podcast the version I do, but if, if any of you are listeners to the Just Thinking podcast, you know, probably I was just talking with someone earlier this evening. Thirty percent of our podcast is dedicated to defining terms. Unt- until and unless you define terms, you have you really have nothing to talk about. Intersectionality is rooted in victimhood. Number one, that's how you must understand that first. Intersectionality is rooted in victimhood. And the reason I say that is because to define what intersectionality is is to also define <clears throat> is to define the subjective categories that intersectionalists include under that broader umbrella. So what you have are uh, black people, LGBTQ, uh, uh, women, uh, especially black especially black lesbian women. Intersectionals, intersectionality is rooted in categorizing different groups of people and then analyzing how the, the victimhood experiences of those individual groups intersect with one another. Okay? So that, that, that's what the term is getting at. But it's rooted in victimhood. Okay, so any category or group of people or person who is defined uh, or 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 contextually uh, denoted to be an intersectional category is rooted in their victimhood and how the society and culture makes them victims, how they're disadvantaged in the society and culture and how those disadvantages uh, intersect one another. The goal of this 
people ask me all the time, well, what's the payoff <clears throat> for critical race theory? And the reason I say critical race theory versus intersectionality is that critical race theory is intersectional. It's intersectional. If you're a reader, pick up a book titled Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory. Intersectionality as Critical Th Social Theory by Patricia Hill Collins. It's a very academic book, but it, every book out there on critical race theory is academic, and I'll, I'll explain why tomorrow. <clears throat> but what you have to understand with respect to the payoff, there is no payoff. There's no end game here. Because if you ultimately reach an end game, that's the end. And the last thing critical race theorists want is for this game to end. There is no payoff. The payoff is to continually make you, especially if you're white, continually find reasons to make you feel like you're an oppressor who, are, who is oppressing intersectional categories of groups. This is why what you'll find in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I was so appreciative of what you just went through with us, what's happening at, at the company where you work. What you're going to find is in DEI, as corporations, uh, uh, DEI executives and, th and, th and those roles, the DEI is the new hustle. It's the new Ponzi scheme. It's the new Ponzi scheme. And what you're going to find is that in most corporations that have a DEI executive right now, probably seven out of every ten of them are black females. Now, you have to ask yourself, where's the diversity in that? <laughs> I, just did a, I just did a personal study. I just read an article a couple weeks ago published by Chicago Business Journal where they were recognizing the, the top DEI executives in Metro Chicago, in corporate Metro Chicago. I counted them up of 22 individuals who, and they had the photos of these individuals as well. 22 individuals, 16 were black female, two were non-black female, that's 18, and four were non-black, non-Hispanic males. So you can, you can tell, I, I love how you pointed out the word bias in your presentation. DEI is inherently biased towards one ethnic group against another ethnic group. So there, there can't be a payoff here because it's working for them. And to that point, my company is in Chicago and our chief equity officer is a black female. Black so female. you're absolutely right. Phil, how would <coughs> you um, speak to really the importance of uh, really defining the terms and, and having that common lexicon? Yeah, well, like Daryl says, that's, everything hinges on that. It's not always easy to define terms. I, I, intersectionality... For me, the easiest way to remember what it is or think of what it is, it's, it's a scoring system for victimhood. So you get more intersectional points the more victim categories you fit into. So if you're, if you're black, there's victimhood in that. If you're disabled, there's victimhood in that. If you're a woman, victimhood in that. If you're transsexual, you're a victim as well. This is a theory that began actually in feminism, and the irony of it is, I think it works against feminism. You can see that in the fact that, uh, what's her name, the author of Harry Potter, uh, does not accept transsexuals as genuine women. And so she's an old-style feminist who, uh, who believes that women and men are different still. 
and she has been pilloried by the radical left, you know, because because she she doesn't accept transsexuals as uh, as really women. So, but to to get the highest intersectional score, you'd have to be a black transsexual professing to be a woman with a disability, and I don't know what else, Daryl. That would be enough. Yeah, you would. You (laughs) so your victimhood would trump everybody else in the room. You know, if you're a black transsexual who professes to be a woman and you're disabled, you you because your score would trump everybody else in the room. Then you're the one that everyone else is expected to listen to. Your life experiences are more valuable and more meaningful than any of the rest of us, and we all should just shut up and listen to you. And so that's the idea behind intersectionality. The, the, the worst victim wins, and that's the person who ought to define for the rest of us how we ought to think and what we ought to do. It's a sinister sort of philosophy because uh, it, it causes people actually to fight for victim points. You know, uh, I'm better off if I see myself as a victim. And if I can define myself that way, then I can at least uh, try to exert the force to make you take me m- more seriously than anyone else because I'm a bigger victim. Absolutely. No, I appreciate that. And, and intersectionality is a big part of, of the premise and what this is all about. I also know that, you know, when we talk about, I think most of us in here would be against ra- racism, against prejudice. And so we have terms like anti-racist or even, you know, the big flagship really around Black Lives Matter. You know, at the very core we would all say before this whole thing started, if you told me that a black life matters, I would say absolutely it does. Of course it does. And in one way, it's an ingenious marketing scheme on their end, right, to pick up something so simple and so intrinsically true. But yet we understand that the depths of these terms really have nothing to do with what's on the surface of them. Anti-racism is really, in fact, racist. And, and Black Lives Matter has very little to do with actual black lives and much more about this agenda. Just anything you guys want to expand on, on that ter- yeah. those terms? Yeah, one thing that, uh, that I actually learned from Daryl, or, or that at least he hammered it into my brain where I, I even try to watch my language, uh, is the word racism itself, you know. We, we are not multiple races. There's a human race. Biblically, there is one race. We have different ethnicities. So I've tried to train myself to speak of ethnic hatred or ethnic strife or ethnic prejudice rather than racism. Racism is, is probably the most abused language, a word in the English language right now. And uh, the left uses it like a cudgel for anything they disagree with They'll call it racist. It doesn't matter if it has anything to do whatsoever with even with ethnic differences. It's racist uh, if they don't like it. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about that uh, more specifically tomorrow morning. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, I mean, don't get me started on BLM. I mean, <laughs> we, we um, and again, I'm not boasting or bragging, but... Uh, Listeners to our Just Thinking podcast will remember last year, Virgil Walker and I, we dropped two consecutive episodes on Black Lives Matter, episodes 102 and 103, if you want to go to our website at justthinking.me and look for those. The first episode was titled Black Lives Matter with a question mark, and then the second episode was 
titled The Church of BLM. In the first episode, we gave you a three-hour-plus expositional overview of who Black Lives Matter is, who their leaders are, how the organization is structured, and what the word matter means to them. The second episode, The Church of BLM, we gave you another three-hour-plus expositional overview of the spiritual and religious uh, liturgical uh, doctrines and precepts and principles that the leaders of Black Lives Matter practices that are practice rather that are rooted in, in pagan African spiritualism. Over six hours, nobody else on the planet was talking about BLM like we were. Nobody. Matter of fact, those two episodes together had such a penetration within uh, society in general that about a month after the second episode was released, BLM whitewashed their entire episode, uh, website of some of the content information we shared in those episodes to where it's unrecognizable now. <clears throat> um, but we warned, we warned the church last year that to BLM, the word matter doesn't mean to them what it means to you. This is why it is so huge to catch the language. I was talking to someone during the break. The significance of listening to the language and understanding what the vernacular is that the culture is using is huge. Because if you can, <clears throat> it is language and how you define terms that can redefine an entire culture. And this is what BLM has done. I was at Princeton Theological Seminary studying the year BLM was launched. It was 2013 when the verdict in the Trayvon Martin murder trial came out. And BLM on their very website said that this organization was founded as a result of the outcome of the Trayvon Martin trial. They said that on their website. And we cited that in our episode. Here we are all these years later. Now, all of a sudden, uh, BLM is being uh, examined, scrutinized, because you've got tens of millions of dollars within this organization that aren't accounted for. Well, we warned you. We warned you about that. And what we as Christians have to learn to do is don't be afraid to question these people. Don't just take on the surface, oh, yeah, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, we agree. Well, well really, do you agree? Do you know what they mean by when they say that? Do you really know what they mean? No, you didn't know what they meant. And that was intentional. Unless you went to their website and you saw that they, that they support the destruction of the Western Judeo-Christian patriarchal family. Unless you went to their website and saw that they promote transgenderism and LGBTQ activism. Unless you went to their website and understood that their BLM is not even a nonprofit organization. They funnel their money through other nonprofit organizations with ties to communist organizations in China. BLM is, is, is in my lifetime, is the most destructive movement that I've ever seen. And yet we had evangelicals lining up in droves to support these people in total ignorance of what they really stood for. So you have to capture the language. If you're going to capture the language, don't be afraid to question the terms that these people are using. Matter doesn't mean the same to BLM as it does to us. Justice doesn't mean the same to BLM as it does to us. 
equality and equity don't mean the same thing to BLM and the critical race theory that it does to Christians. You have to know your Bible so well that you can make those distinctions because you're going to have to do that at some point if you haven't already. Yeah, I think that's that's great. Those are those are phenomenal answers, both of you. I appreciate that. Oh, can I say one more thing? Please. The slide you showed that was titled The Culture. I mean, that thing was written like someone from BLM wrote it. Yeah. Action? That's a that's a buzzword. Whenever you see someone saying we need to take action, that's that's socialism. That's that's cultural Marxism. Well, we need to take action. Protesting, demonstrating, forcing people to believe. Now, I was—I almost laughed at that one slide. I don't know if you guys caught this, where the the corporation said, "Well, we're not going to force you to ch- change your beliefs." Yeah. But if but we we do want you to to implement what we what we're yeah. what we're saying. You. <laughs> That's exactly right, and I think you know you're you're going down this road. So I'll just go ahead and take you there. Um, a lot of the questions in here, I've got probably nine here. There are really around either engaging this issue, um, defending Christian um, biblical truth against this issue, and then interweaving the gospel with this issue. Where does a guy in the church who knows his Bible well enough to know that this is wrong, where does he start um, especially this is all men here who are, are leaders in one way or another in their work, in their home, and in the church. Um, what do they do? Where do they start with a response? How do they engage this issue on an individual basis? Well, for me, it would depend on uh, wh- where the discussion came from and where it's going. If, if it's someone arguing that this is justice, then I would want to uh, have a biblical discussion about what does the word justice mean? What does justice mean in Scripture? Because biblical justice includes the principle that, you know, a person who doesn't work shouldn't eat. Are you in favor of that? You know, biblical justice says if a man sheds man's blood, then his blood will be shed. So capital punishment. Are you, is that your idea of justice? Let's define justice biblically if we're going to say, you know, as Christians, I'm going to support justice because I'm in favor of biblical justice. Social justice is a totally different thing. So I would have that discussion. But I think ultimately it boils down to the reality that Daryl has been stressing that um, all of all of these, all of the every social wrong, every genuine social injustice uh, is rooted in human sin. And the answer to sin is not uh, legislation that. Uh, it mandates certain kinds of behavior. Scripture itself says if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. And so I would want to talk to them about what what is the righteousness I need to have a right standing in God's eyes. Forget all the social status and, and um, you know, equity and stuff like that that people want to talk about. Let's talk about our standing before God, and that takes you right into the gospel. Uh, and 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 all those themes, justice and uh, human sin, you know, are part and parcel of uh, of the gospel presentation. How we go from there? You know, as I listened to Phil, I couldn't help but thinking back to the uh, the graphic that you showed towards the end of your uh, your presentation that shows the the 
the three the, the three images of three black people trying to see a, a ball game. <clears throat> well, listen. Equity is you buy a ticket or you can't see the game. That's equity. Psalm, one of my favorite verses on this topic of equity versus equality is Psalm 98, where, where the psalmist writes that God will judge the people with equity. It doesn't say he's going to judge them with equality. Do you guys realize that in heaven, not even in heaven will things be equal? you realize that? Is God unfair? I want to bring to your mind two biblical examples that I love to leverage when we're talking about this whole topic of equity justice and equality. First one is from the Old Testament in 1 Kings 3. 1 Kings 3, we have the uh, account of Solomon adjudicating an argument between two, uh, what scripture says is two female prostitutes actually, uh, arguing that, well, one of the one, one of the women's baby died and there's one alive, one living baby left and the, this one woman is alleging that the baby is hers and not the other mother. So they're going back and forth. <clears throat> Solomon threatens to cut the baby in half to, to solve the situation. Now, equality would say, yeah, cut the baby in half. As one of the mothers asserted that King Solomon do. So no, she shall be, the baby shall neither be mine or yours. Cut it in half. Now that's equality. Each of the women would have gone home with half a dead baby. Equity, though, see, equality is, is concerned with outcome without regard to the truth. That's my definition of equality. Equality is concerned with outcome without regard to the truth. Equity is concerned with outcome with regard to the truth. So Solomon was obligated. Remember, Solomon prayed that God would give him wisdom to judge his people. In First Kings 3, he's applying that God-given wisdom to this situation. So he, he didn't judge with equality in mind. He judged with equity in mind, which meant, I, what is the truth here? Well, he got to the truth. The baby was given to the rightful mother, which meant that one of those women went home without a baby. You see, this, the entire social justice movement, to use that uh, account in 1 Kings 3, the entire social justice movement is rooted in the myth that no one should ever go home without anything. Equal equality is a myth. It is a myth. It's a myth. The goal is equity, not equality. Let me give you an example from the New Testament. Matthew chapter 20. <clears throat> we have the parable of the vineyard workers. The three vineyard workers. The owner of the vineyard hires laborers to work the field. At the end of that parable, the laborer who worked the longest but was paid the same amount of money as the laborers who worked less hours than he did. See, what he wanted was equality. What he got was equity. He got what he agreed to be paid. He should have been more shrewd in negotiating his rate of pay. But the, the, the uh, vineyard owner was not unfair. He paid him what he agreed to pay him. That's equity. 
But what he wanted was equality because he wanted to he wanted to distinguish himself above the other laborers simply because he worked longer hours. But that wasn't the agreement. So what we have to understand, again, we have to filter these terms through what the scripture says. It's like the presentation we just saw. This company is using terms like equity and equality and justice in in completely unbiblical context. Now, it's a secular company. I understand that. But what I'm saying is this, is that as a Christian, as this brother here, he's a Christian employee of the secular company. He's obligated to filter these terms through a biblical lens, through a biblical worldview. And what the entire social justice movement is trying to convince you of is that the goal of society is to ensure equality of outcome for everybody so that no one misses the ball game. So that no one so so that each of these women goes home with a baby. It's, 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 it's rooted in the idea that there should be no consequences for your own decisions. And for you to suffer consequences is an injustice. But see, that's how they massage the terms, you see. So that's why they're trying to do, as, 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 as this brother just pointed out, that's what they're trying to make up for these things in DEI initiatives and uh, and we'll get to CRT in schools in a minute. But this is all, <clears throat> again, a part and parcel of them re-resurrecting and re-prosecuting past injustices by showing ethnic partiality towards a certain ethnic, demo- or, or a certain ethnic demographic, an intersectional group, at the expense of people who look like this brother right here, people who look like Phil, people who don't look like me. Thank you. <clears throat> Appreciate that. So, you know, obviously it sounds like, you know, there there's a lot to learn to get caught up if you're not caught up. This conference is going to be a big part of, of, of getting up to speed really quickly. Um, on just finally here, w- there are voices out there that are from the church that are speaking about these things as we would all agree with, uh, from a conservative standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, but there are voices within the church who are leaning much more towards uh, this woke ideology that's causing a lot of fractures within major denominations, major um, um, groups that were once favorable to us, uh, to our way of thinking, I should say. Um, What do we do when we have people who once were were pillars of truth that we would lean towards and who have now adopted this woke belief, what what do we do with their previous writings and 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 then what do we do now with with folks who have gone on the woke side? How how should we how should we deal with this? Yeah, I don't think there's a standard answer that applies to every individual that you're describing. There are there are I think men in the evangelical in evangelical circles who would self-identify as evangelical who've been pushing this for a long time uh and i would say be wary of them um there are others who and i'm i'm hesitant to like name lists of names because i just don't want to get into that but uh i've watched this thing unfold over the past two decades 
we had at the at the beginning of the new millennium there was the the popularity of a movement called the emerging church movement which was they talked a lot about social justice this was one of the major planks in their platform but they were also theologically shaky and and the emerging church movement for the most part veered towards theological liberalism they began to question the ideas of substitutionary atonement and the imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us and all of that was linked to their idea of justice uh, how can how can you impute the guilt of one person's sin to another justly so how could Christ carry my sins how could he pay the penalty for my sins and how could i how could i benefit from his righteousness that's not fair it's not just to impute righteousness or guilt from one to another but without that you don't really have a gospel and so you had two organizations that were founded about the same time around 2009 gospel coalition and and even before that together for the gospel together for the gospel i think was the better and more precise of those two organizations but there was a lot of crossover a lot of the men who founded and spoke and and were leaders in those two organizations the ones especially that crossed over and were involved with both they are the ones today who are, you know, for the most part, promoting social justice and the whole agenda. And they're trying to steer it that direction and consciously trying to do that. And in fact, both of those organizations about three or four years ago had, had national gatherings where social justice was the theme. And they began to push these ideas. To me, that was a betrayal of their founding principles because they're moving away from the gospel if the gospel is what unites us if we are truly together for the gospel then let's make the gospel the main thing once you start dragging political opinions and and uh, and and secular ideas social justice and black lives matter made an appearance in all of these things uh and and blending that with christian teaching and saying these are gospel issues You've corrupted the gospel in a similar way to what the the emerging church movement was doing. I see it. I see the whole push to embrace social justice as a tenet of gospel truth, as a subset of what the emerging church movement stood for in the first place. It's a revival of the emerging church. I predicted ten years ago that that was going to happen when the emerging church movement began to dissolve as a movement, my comment, and it's still in writing at my old blog, uh, the movement may be dead, but those ideas that they infused into younger evangelicals' minds are like so many dandelion seeds that are going to, you know, bring out a crop of weeds. And in less time than I expected it to happen, that happened. And it happened with the social justice movement, which I see as a departure from the gospel. It's not in every case... A denial of gospel truth. There's some men who have, who have, you know, v- verbalized um, support for social justice ideas, who haven't simultaneously denied gospel principles. They're not attacking the doctrine of substitutionary atonement like the emergence did, but that's coming in the next generation because once you let a secular mind define for you what justice is, you're going to rule out the gospel. Because you're going, to, you're going to buy the idea that, wait, substitutionary atonement, that's not just. For Christ to suffer for my sins when he's innocent, 
there's no justice in that. And for me to benefit from his righteousness, that doesn't seem fair either. So how can we redefine the gospel to make it more fair? And inevitably, it ends up saying, what Christ did was give us an example to follow. So that now, the work of atonement rests on your back. What you do, you have to be like him in order to earn the righteousness you need to please God. And that overthrows the gospel. It goes against everything the book of Galatians teaches, everything the book of Romans teaches. Uh, It totally corrupts the gospel. And that always happens if you let secular definitions of justice creep in. uh, Because the gospel isn't intended to be fair. It's intended to be gracious. And so I'm saved by grace through faith. Not by my works, not because I earned it. Yeah, it's not fair. And yet, Scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The justice of the gospel lies in the fact that the penalty of sin was paid. It wasn't just overlooked. God didn't just overthrow the law. Christ paid that price. So the gospel is just. But it's just by God's definition, not by the ladies who started Black Lives Matter. And that's a that's yep. a perfect a perfect note, Daryl. I'm sure you've got a lot of stuff to say. I was on just going to say, thank God the gospel isn't fair. Yeah, <laughs> Amen. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't want justice. You want Absolutely. mercy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, fellas, um, we are out of time. Unfortunately, I could I could ask you guys questions all night. I'm sure some folks have to go to the bathroom, however, and we have a whole day tomorrow where we get to hang out with you guys and hear more from you. So, guys, how about a round of applause for Phil and Daryl? So, thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much.